Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we welcome in the one and only Jennifer Selliers, Director of Internal Compliance for the State of Tennessee Department of Treasury and current NSCP board member, for an authentic look at how to find your own career path in compliance and everywhere. In our headline section, the SEC seeks comment on broker-dealer and investment advisor digital engagement practices. We look at a recent SEC Investor Advisory Committee meeting to demonstrate the contrasting views on market regulation and close with a quick update on the SEC's telework timeline. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of Outtakes, as we look to showcase how even an exempt reporting advisor can find itself in hot water with the SEC and its LP investors, particularly where an auditor isn't involved. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, at the end of August, the SEC indicated they are seeking comment regarding digital engagement practices, or DEPs, by broker-dealers and investment advisors. The term DEP includes behavioral prompts, differential marketing, gamification, features to promote retail investors' engagement, and related data analytics and technological tools. The SEC stated that the purpose of the request was to One, help the SEC better understand which types of DEPs firms use and how often, what tools and processes are used to create and put in place DEPs, and how retail investors engage with DEPs, including the demographics, trade details, and performance of their investments. The SEC also stated that the purpose of the request was to provide interested parties with a platform for sharing their views on the benefits and drawbacks of DEPs, help the SEC and its staff determine whether additional regulatory action is needed, and aid the SEC in understanding how investment advisors use DEP analytical tools and related technology to advise clients. In addition, the SEC is seeking to better understand what conflicts of interest are present with optimization practices and if such practices impact the decision to employ DEPs for an investment recommendation. In the request, the SEC provided a short feedback flyer that was intended to encourage retail investors to express their opinions on DEPs. Comments on the request must be received by the staff no later than October 1st, 2021. For our next headline, we look at a recent SEC Investor Advisory Committee meeting on September 9th, 2021, where SEC Chair Gensler and SEC Commissioner Peirce offered contrasting views on market regulation, particularly as to how to leverage new technologies and financial products. In his address, Chair Gensler focused on investor protection highlighting certain concerns he had raised by the design of online trading platforms, the insider trading enforcement regime, and SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. As to current digital engagement practices, Chair Gensler described some of the inherent conflicts of interest between financial intermediaries and investors, particularly when DEPs are being optimized for revenues, which could affect investment recommendations. Mr. Gensler discussed the SEC's request for information and comment on the use of DEPs that we just mentioned a few minutes ago. And again, he requested submissions from the committee and other interested listeners. Finally, he noted the inherent biases of these business models should some of this underlying data reflect historical biases. With regard to the SPACs, Terragenzer stated that these disclosures around dilution should be strengthened and reported that the staff is developing some rulemaking recommendations in this area. On the flip side of the coin, 
SEC Commissioner Peirce urged the Investor Advisory Committee to promote a regulatory process for digital platforms that considers investor opportunity as well as investor protection. Ms. Peirce contended that investors, quote, at times may be willing to take on more risk than the regulator thinks is prudent, end quote. And thus, the regulatory process should not undercut an investor's ability to interact with the latest technologies, have access to new types of assets, and try new products and services. Ms. Peirce stated that a healthy regulatory response to such investor demand would not override investor decisions, but rather help inform and educate investors by using the same technologies through which they are investing. So what's the key takeaway from this investment advisory committee meeting? Well, I think it's pretty clear that we have two starkly different regulatory philosophies at the SEC right now. And while both have very credible arguments, I think it's important and hopefully those that are at the SEC are considering that it doesn't have to be all investor protection and it it doesn't have to be all innovation. I think that there are ways in which some of these particular DEPs and other related concepts are, are both able to push the industry forward while still offering some investor protection so as to not become a detriment to the industry and those looking to invest in it. Finally, in our last headline, the SEC recently updated its COVID-19 telework operation status, stating that it will remain in full telework posture with limited exceptions until at least November 1st, later this year. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we're going to be focusing on a topic that is affecting not just folks in compliance, but really employers and employees everywhere. And that is finding your career path. Now, we're obviously going to focus the conversation on compliance, and I am incredibly pleased to welcome in with us a very special guest, Ms. Jennifer Selliers, who is the Director of Internal Compliance with the Department of Treasury for the state of Tennessee. Jennifer is responsible for many of the financial and administrative operations of the Tennessee state government, including administering the state's consolidated retirement system and managing over $60 billion in public assets. Previously, Jennifer held compliance and operational roles within the private sector, primarily for dual registrants, but her areas of expertise are a very wide-spanning breadth of expertise, including compliance program development, policies and procedures formation, and risk and control assessments. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Business Finance from the, from the University of Phoenix, in addition to other professional designations such as the CSCP Compliance designation offered by the National Society of Compliance Professionals. Jennifer is also a current board member of the NSCP, in addition to serving on the Publication, Finance, and Membership Affairs Committees. Apart from her professional aspirations, Jennifer enjoys backpacking and hobby farming with her husband and two sons, and we are incredibly excited to have you on the show today. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So as we get started, I think one of the things I really want to dig into, and, and again, it, I think it's kind of funny because I think a lot of us in the uh, legal and compliance space experience this, you know, maybe it's at a career fair or other spots where, you know, we'll get questions like, did, did you always know you wanted to be a compliance officer? You know, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I think... And I think, you know, for many of us, you know, compliance wasn't necessarily something that maybe was on our radar for, you know, as we were getting, as we were starting off in our careers, but maybe for others it was. And so I'm just really interested, you know, how, how did you ultimately find your way into the compliance field? 
Right, Pat. So you're spot on. I totally fell into it, like many of us, right? Like I had these big grand visions, you know, I'm going to be an astronaut, president of the United States, whatever you might. And um, what happened was I moved to Houston kind of on a whim and looking for a job, no job, no home, right? And I answered an ad for a firm that was looking for somebody to review Reg D documents. I had a paralegal legal science degree, and so I went to interview for this place. I show up, and it's a boutique fixed income firm. Bunch of guys running around, making cold calls, right? <laughs> Doing what sure. those guys do. And I got hired, um, and then from there, I just, you know, I did some time on the trading desk, did some time in tra- operations. 2003 come along and pretty soon everybody needs a CCO and I drew the short straw. (laughs) That's how I landed in compliance. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, So that as a backdrop, then as we start to get like, you know, into uh, the, the details of, you know, finding a career path in compliance and, and again, I think your experience, it's it's somewhat akin to mine. Um, you know, had I known that, you know, the investment management, uh, a, a subset practice area of securities law existed in when I was in law school, my, my career path would have been drastically different. I spent the first five years of my legal career doing litigation. And I like to say I'm a, I'm a reformed litigator now. Please don't hold <laughs> it against me. But how, how do you stay motivated? You know, like what what are things that you have done in your compliance role or as your compliance role has expanded and evolved and you've taken on, you know, new responsibilities? You know, what what are the things that you do that helps you kind of stay motivated in your compliance role? I think one of the things that helps me stay motivated is just remembering that I'm responsible for driving my own career. Whether that's in compliance or whether that's a total career shift, and I know there's a lot of people out there contemplating that and taking those big leaps, but I I own that. That's mine, you know, and so I think for me, that's been the motivating factor. Like, I need to have a clear vision of what it is I want to do and where I'm going so that I can drive towards that. And I've kind of applied that same approach to when I come in and develop a compliance program for an organization, right? Compliance kind of, it's got all these preconceived notions about what it is, what it isn't, what we do and what we don't do, right? Well, at the end of the day, as the director of a program or as a manager of that program or as a member of that team, you drive that, you drive Mm -hmm. that forward, you become that for the organization and you set the tone and tenor of, of what that becomes for the organization. Um, and so I think that for me has been, been the motivating factor. I guess if I had to sum it up, it, it, it's kind of like my legacy, right? Like sure. I, we spend a lot of time doing what we do in our careers. That That's, that's a great point. And, and I like how you're framing it in that way of, you know, the, the roles that you have and, and the stuff that you're doing, like, of course, there's like the uh, the technical parts and and there's the the part of I want to continue to get better and, and enhance my own technical expertise and knowledge. But ultimately, as, as you either either stay in that role, but take on more responsibilities or even move on to other roles like someone else is going to come into that role and they're going to look at what you built 
and they're going to look at right and so they're going to look at that and they're going to and, and again like thinking about legacy and the other stuff like that you know having uh b- being able to have pride and 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 obviously be satisfied in some ways with knowing that you built something that's that's of value right for both what you're doing now and for the the next person who might fill fill that role too that's a good actually that's kind of a good segue it sparks another question that i really wanted to talk about with you because i think a lot of compliance officers struggle with this especially early on in in their career which is focusing more on technical stuff or focusing more on professional development stuff and and you know being able to you know call yourself an expert right like what's the old uh, uh, analogy if you you work ten thousand hours or something like that in something then you can start to say you've developed a subject matter expertise but but i guess that in, and i'll tell you i struggled with that a lot early on in my career just trying to juggle both right do i spend more time brushing up on technical stuff or do i spend more time on professional development. And I don't know, I, I'd love to get your thoughts there. You know, do you think one or the other is better to focus on in your career? And does that change depending on where you're at in your career? Yeah, I, I think that it absolutely changes depending on where you're at in your career and, and to some extent where you sit within an organization, right? So I think you're right, Pat. I, I know that I personally struggled early on in my career with not being able to say, I don't know, because I felt like that was a weakness. Like people would then lose trust in me, um, wouldn't come to me when they had problems, right? And that's part of the role of compliance is solving problems. So, but I think that it's important that we say that with, with a disclaimer, right? Like you're exactly right. You have to balance your technical knowledge and expertise and you balance that with the other people in your organization. What's your what's your network? What's your team look like, right? If you know you have a weakness in specific asset class or a specific aspect of the financial services business, then you need to make sure your team, your organization builds that out, that you have those contacts that you can leverage, right? Same on the professional side, you know, when you're developing your communication skills, your managerial skills, those types of things. You you have to find time to work on those, just like you do your technical, and you have to balance those out. I think it's really important that at at various intervals throughout an individual's career, they they stop and do a self assessment, and they have people close enough so they can be like, Where, "Where's my shortcomings, buddy? You know, tell tell me what you really think." Mm-hmm. And those people that are really going to share with you both those professional skills and those technical skills that you're just not so good at. Yeah, that is, I am thrilled that you brought that up. I like, because I will tell you the best mentors I've ever had in my life uh, taught me one thing early in the relationship that I was going to, and and it's funny in, in my own personal experience, oddly enough, a lot of my best mentors weren't actually directly like uh, uh, my boss in compliance, just for whatever, however it worked out. It was like, you know, the, the head of a private client group or a private equity group or some yeah. other kind of thing. And we just connected. And and so then the, the kind of mentorship mentee relationship just kind of developed organically. But what they told me that you just that you you, you just detailed 
is they basically said, look, like at the beginning of the relationship, it was like, hey, look, all of like the uh, uh, political stuff or like all the other stuff, like we're just going to throw that over to the side. Okay, like that's over here on this, on the, to totally remove that from like the relationship between me and you. You know that I've got your back. You know that I think you're you're great and that and I appreciate everything that you do and the value that you add and the hard work that you do. So let's just have a real relationship where we can give honest feedback and, yeah. and take all that other kind of stuff and just push it to the side. And like, you know, it, let's not let that get in the way of being really good, uh, really good mentor mentees to each other or whatever else. And I loved that. It was so refreshing. It was like, then I wasn't worried about how I was going to look in front of that person right. or whatever else. It was like a real honest relationship and it allowed them, I'm sure to give me honest feedback. And, and I think it's also important when, when you're in the mentee role, uh, for those listeners that might be earlier on in their careers to the show. That, that you're receptive of that, that, that you are willing to listen to someone in a way where they're trying to help you, even though what, you know, their uh, feedback to you may be constructive and not necessarily praiseworthy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that there's, to, to your point, Pat, there's, there's people in my life that are my, are my cheering squad, right? When I need that pick me up, I know I can call them and they're going to be like, you know, fuck up camper. You've got this, you know, you just take that bull by the horn, run with it. You're making the right decisions. Right. And then there's some other days when I'm like, I'm feeling like I need to do this. I need to bounce this off somebody. And I have another group of people that I can call up and they, they'll, they'll be like, I don't know what you're thinking, but you need to take that back to the table. Right. <laughs> and and right. you need both types of those people along with other types of people to just help you build and round out your, your professional and your career. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. And one of the things I remember bouncing off uh, to that end, a person that I knew was going to give me good feedback as to whether or not I, I needed this uh, was someone you're talking about degrees or accreditations or certifications and other stuff that, that we can all kind of build into our own professional development <laughs> Another question that I think a lot of folks who are pr probably managers uh, uh, in the compliance space get this question a lot, which is like, what what is the right degree, you know, quote unquote, or accreditation to have like, hey, I'm really interested in like, you know, enhancing my technical expertise or whatever else like what's the what 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 degree should i go get what accreditation should i go get you know and i guess when you get that question <laughs> as a manager of other compliance folks you know what what typically would your answer be yeah so, i mean my first question like if they come to me and they, they're like oh, you know i really want to do x or i really want to do y my first question is why right so much in pat I right. cannot tell you how many universities and how many times I have sat down and like, I'm going to go to law school, right? Me at 40 something years old, I'm like, yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to law school. I'm going to fork over lots of money, right? Let's face it. I'm going to dedicate all this time, right? And that's, that's not even the bar, right? Like that's just going back to, to law school. Right. I can't tell you how many times I have had that dilemma with myself. There is a lot of energy, emotional and physical energy you expend for any certification or degree. And so you really have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? If it is to move to that next level in your career, because I do believe that there are certain levels and certain organizations you can't achieve without certain credentials. 
Sure. And, and, and that is why, and, and that's one of those things you want to achieve for yourself, then, then that's something you should explore. If it's because somebody told you so, or somebody said you needed it, right? Or society says you, everybody on LinkedIn says has one, I need one too. <laughs> that's probably not going to keep you motivated when you're out at 2 a.m. writing a paper or studying for a thing. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it's, when it comes down to it, I don't know if there's a right answer, especially for compliance. You meet so many different people with undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees from all different backgrounds and diversifications, and they draw from that in unique ways and apply it to the same things that we struggle with day in and day out as a collective, like, legal compliance community. So Totally. Well, I mean, one... Let me just say that you, uh, as a practicing attorney, you definitely made the right decision not to go to law school. <laughs> and one of the things you also talked about that I, I think is really important for the listeners to keep in mind, it, you talked about the word motivation. And, and that's something that I also thought was really important that someone communicated to me, which is that like, if you're only doing this, like if the only reason you're going to go get, you know, X, Y, Z degree, go back to law school, go get an MBA, go get a, a, a certain type of certification is because like you, you just want it to get the next step in your career. Even, even in those situations where it's going to be totally necessary. If you're not like, if it's not something that you enjoy, if like the, the compliance of it is something you enjoy or whatever else, it can be really hard to like stay motivated to stay up to write those papers or study for those tests or whatever else. Ultimately, your point about like, you know, why are you going back there? If it's because, well, I really enjoy this area, right? And I'm interested in like developing myself even further, or, you know, there are certain uh, other areas that I don't have a lot of experience in and I want to get to know better. Like those to me, were always great motivating factors that then ultimately was like, okay, like I'm going to go do X, Y, Z versus uh, again, like, you know, like trying to sit still in, in the dentist chair, like kicking and screaming, like, <laughs> you know, you, you are going to get the certification it, it, less likely to feel, feel really good about that. It's so true, Pat. This is another personal story real quick. I, you know, I once had a, an asset manager tell me, well, you don't know because you don't have a CFA. And so I took that as a challenge. I'm like, oh, yeah, buddy, Bob, go get my CFA, right? And so I like spend all this money. I go to the class. I spend a year plowing through the level one CFA materials, right? And it gets time to that point where it's like, you got to schedule exam or you're yeah. going to start all over, right? Yeah. And I never did sit for that exam because I would get to that point. I'd be like, I do not. I have no desire to do this, and I am not good at it. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? So Totally. A direct correlation to sometimes even like just getting back at somebody also not a good motive. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I am I am such a negatively motivated person. I am glad that no one ever told me what they told you because I'm sure I would have made the, I'm sure I would have made the the same decision and been like, oh, I'm going to show them. Uh, and then I'm I'm pretty sure that again a, a year in I would have been in the same boat. Like I still don't understand any of this. Um, so. So, um, Pat, Pat, too, I think for one of the things that I did get out of that, even though the year of studying and stuff, I, I realized that it was okay to give my, myself permission to just be, right? Like, it was okay for people to 
have their own perceptions of what it was I was or what it wasn't and what I knew or I didn't know. And I had to be okay with that. And I had to give myself permission to be okay with that. And I know that feels a little weird sometimes when you have to, you know, like do the self-affirmation thing, like it's okay, let it go, right? Like it's okay, let it go. But sometimes you gotta do that. And and especially I find that so true for compliance officers because there's there's so much expectation and perception about what we are, what we are. I think you had a session with Rob Cole, right? And he he talked yeah. about this burnout, right? And how yeah. compliance officers have like limited resources and unrealistic expectations and like this just gross uncertainty that pulls away on our back, right? And you like take that back and you're like, geez, why am I doing what I'm doing, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's true. Sometimes you yeah. take that in and you've got to be like, you know what? That's not it. And I'm just yeah. gonna let this all simmer. Yeah, no, one, it's uh, 100% true. And actually, you just touched on it again. So it, you, you mentioned this kind of near the top, and you just touched on it again, which is th- doing some kind of self-assessment, doing some kind of self-reflection in a way that is really meaningful at different points in your career, and where you can start to say, you know, where am I at right now? And, you know, wh- wh- what am I working toward is, is, you know, we were just talking about getting degrees and accreditations. Is that really what the next step is? Is that really where I want to go? You know, in, in having those kind of reflective moments, I guess one of the things that I would ask and, and you know, uh, uh, for, for you to, to maybe share with, with us is, I know at different points throughout your career, you would have had tough decisions or questions that you would have been asking yourself. And you probably came to a couple of different crossroads <laughs> in your career. Right. Um, what, what, as you were having, because I guess I think one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners are going to benefit from in hearing this episode is that as they're, as they're going to be entering their own questions, as they're going to be coming up to the, their own crossroads and having those moments of self-reflection, you know, what were some key things that in your own experience you were thinking about and and that ultimately helped you approach those situations when when you were standing at a crossword standing at a crossroads and figuring out what the next steps were going to look like sure so i I think one of the things that has helped me at those decision points is just the amount of of kind of what i'll call frontline experience i've had right so i've been able to serve in many roles across the industry it's given me a different perspective um, I've been on the buy side, I've been on the sell side, I've been on the private asset side, right now I'm on the public asset management side, right? And so it does afford me an opportunity when I come to Crossroads to have a, a better toolkit of what do I like, what do I don't like, right? And so I think that it's really important when you're thinking through this to draw on the experiences you've had. I, I, I think too, you know, I've learned through my career that it's about integration and not about balance. Right. You spend people spent humans spend a lot of time working, right? Whether that's professionally, whether that's personally, right? But it really it's not about balancing those different aspects out in your life. You will never achieve that balance. That is not attainable. But it's about integrating those aspects of your life, right? And managing that integration. And it's important to think about that, you know, especially when you're thinking about a career change, 
um, you know, our work environments nowadays, the people we're going to interact, the type of work you're going to do, travel kind of a consideration now, you know, there's a, a lot of that going on now, um, mm -hmm. discussions about that. And so I think those are probably two of the biggest pieces I, I have taken away. I think the other thing for me too is making a career change, not just to climb that corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. Like really evaluating why I would be making a move, whether that's internally or externally, you know, why I would be making that move just to just to ensure that it's not to just put that next wrong or that next fancy title next to my name. Because, again, at the end of the day, when you look back and you're like, yeah, I was VP, but I really wasn't VP of anything. Right. right. Or, or VP of being unhappy in my role. Um, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's that's really good advice. Looking back now. Right. So with with you know 2020 hindsight as you look back at some of those decisions that you made when you approached those different crossroads were there certain things that maybe and i know like you mentioned the cfa and and kind of doing that for even though you didn't have a passion for it but but uh, kind of uh, for some negative motivation from one of your colleagues were, were there other things and i guess you, you did just talk about the ladder climbing too but maybe are, are there any other either anecdotes or other stuff that that you know going back you might say were uh, things that you would uh, avoid doing or other uh, tips, tricks, or, or best practices that, that you used when you approach those situations? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I have found a lot of value in is just giving myself space to think strategically. You know, we're, we're knowledge workers, right? We, we use our brains day in and day out but we don't frequently give ourselves the time and space to think strategically about our own. And I learned that really late in my career. And it's something I do with my team now because I found such great value in it. You know, it, it, helps, you, it helps you establish where you are. It helps you establish where you want to go. And then it helps you realize how far you've come. Sometimes we forget how far we've come because we, we, we feel like we've had so many setbacks, right? But when you can take a look at the goals you've set for yourself, even two years ago, right? And yeah. maybe they weren't the ones you pinned down, but it helps you remember, oh yeah, I forgot that I was doing that then. And look, now I'm doing this now, right? Mm -hmm. It really helps you. So I think giving yourself space and time on a intentionally, an intentional periodic basis, setting aside some time and you're like, you know what, I'm going to just concentrate on who I am right now and where I'm going with my career. And, and I like to expand that out to think through, you know, how you give back to the community, how you give back to your family and friends, right? Like, I really like to try and make it a little more holistic than just, you know, aspiring to be a better you. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's a piece that, that I try to, and I cannot stress enough the value of mentors. You know, we've, we've kind of talked about that network already a little bit briefly, but it, it really is invaluable. And I know there's kind of this weird squishy feeling, right? Like there has to be this formal conversation of like, would you be my mentor, right? Like, you know, I have small children. And so, you know, yeah. the whole, will you be my friend? It, it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Being intentional about making those connections. And then when you find that connection, being intentional about building that connection, like you said, right. And you're right. At some point you really need to have those frank conversations. You're like, no, I need you to be like, 
really honest with me. Mm-hmm. You may find people that you 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 built that with and you can do that with. It's really important that mm-hmm. you be open to those types of relationships. I think, I mean, one, you said a couple of different things in there that I think are really, really important. And I'll, I'll highlight a couple, but it actually, it leads to a follow-up question, which is one, I totally agree on, on the, on the mentorship side that it, it can be as formal or informal as you'd like it to be. And, and again, like at different positions along the way or different boards or other stuff that I've been fortunate enough to sit on where I've made a connection with somebody and, 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 and I knew right away, oh man, I really, really like, and, and I just get so much out of being with that person and talking with that person. I want to soak up everything that that person can offer. You know, you, you don't, you don't need to be like, yeah, like have it be some like very regimented formal thing where you ask them to be your mentor. You can instead different approach just ask them to go to lunch or grab a beer or whatever right like instead just do that and then and then go do it so that that's one thing the other thing that you mentioned though and i'm i'm really interested to dig into this a little bit with you because i know that you are a manager of teams right and so some of that intention that you use when you're having certain conversations or where um you know you are trying to develop meaningful connections um is probably with some of the uh, um, uh, uh, dynamics that go on in any kind of team environment. And I don't think there's ever been a more challenging environment. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of hyper, uh, a little bit of hyperbole. I'll say the last two years for anybody managing a team have been incredibly challenging, right? Uh, moving to the remote environment, trying to, again, continue to build that that rapport, build that camaraderie, stay connected. So a question for you, which would be, how, how have you been able to effectively lead your team during this challenging environment? So I'm going to start off with just kind of the overall concept. And, I, and I'm going to paraphrase here. I got this from a book called Quiet Leadership. It's a fantastic book. It's a great book for people who want to lead high-performing knowledge teams. Highly recommend it. But there's an overarching theme in that book, which is for compliance professionals day in and day out, we are there to manage problems, risks, right? Mm-hmm. If you manage people, right? You, you need to be having focused on strengths. And that's hard for us to shift out of what we are inherently still the students officers, right? To then shift to that management aspect where now I got to like cultivate these people's strengths, right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's important that before you go into those managerial type conversations and communications and meetings, that you, you have something that helps you trigger that shift. I think for me, I think you're right, Pat, and switching to remote first or remote only in many cases, right on new team members and stuff, you know, you really have to think about how to 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 kind of keep it personal and keep it real, right? I think one of the things that I have done is, you know, really embrace the virtual coffee thing. You know, it's a little weird. I'll I'll Trust me, like it feels a little contrived at first. You talk to somebody and you're like, I want to do virtual coffee, right? And you're their compliance officer and they get on the phone and they're like, yeah, right? And you can like sense the hesitation in their voice. And right. you're like, no, no, right. I just, I wanted to see how your dog was doing or your cat or the kids or, you know, I know you were getting the new car, you know, and, and 
creating that personal interaction that you would have normally received in the hallway or by the microwave or at the train station. So I've done a lot of that of being really focused on creating those opportunities. I have this open office hours, and I think there's a couple of larger brokerage firms that have done this before with their compliance staff, but they mm -hmm. have like this open chat room, you know, open hours. We use Teams here at the state and I have time when my light says open our office and my mm -hmm. team can just come in and stop and chat about something important or nothing at all <laughs> yeah. in those office hours, just like they would if my door was open at our physical office. So I think those are two things that I have done again, to just be really intentional about creating an opportunity to make myself accessible. And I think when you do that, you have to make yourself, quote your fingers, physically accessible, right? You're mm -hmm. on camera, people can see your face, full expression. I'm a big talker with my hands. <laughs> you guys can't see on the podcast. <laughs> and then mentally available to you, right? You yeah. have to shut the email down, just, you know, yep. take some time and focus on that person. I am shortly after this episode drops uh, going to become a a subscriber to that uh, to, to to both of those ideas. I, I love the idea of setting up kind of virtual copies or happy hours or or again kind of having general office hours where folks can come to you. I I mean I know that that has been something. It's that like organic kind of. And it's not a lot of it's personal talk. A lot of it's like that relationship building and connecting with your team and, and being able to understand what makes each other tick that ultimately makes you much better colleagues. And when you collaborate together on projects and other stuff like that. And some of it, too, is like, you know, our our industry, the legal compliance realm generally is, is often built on an apprenticeship model. Yep. Right. And, yep. and, and it's really hard to organically have those meetings. But what I like that you're doing by by like making that intentional ask of the coffee or the happy hour, or the office hours is you start to take something that initially feels inorganic, which is like, I'm going to, okay, it's 3.30. I'm going to now go hop on a Zoom call and talk with my boss hundreds or thousands of miles away over a video on a screen versus then as that happens more and more and more and more it just starts to become part of the routine and then it starts to feel a lot more organic like they might even start looking for it they start looking forward to it they they're building it into their own schedule they're building meetings around it because it's important to them because it allows them to stay connected in a way that doesn't feel contrived and that doesn't feel uh, uh forced or again to use the word like it doesn't feel inorganic it feels like something natural to them yeah so speaking of that apprenticeship model, like how that has developed over time, you know, certainly as we, you know, hopefully knock on wood, we can continue to have more in, in person uh, types of activities coming up. But that apprenticeship model also includes, I think, in a lot of ways for our younger team members, goal setting right in professional development and working with them to figure out where they want to go in their careers right so you know i'm really interested in learning too uh you know what are some things that you do with your team when you are uh, uh looking to do goal setting or professional development um in that kind of way or are there certain things that you have found to be really successful yeah 
So I think one of the things that I do with my team kind of right off the bat is, you know, I share with them our, our compliance leadership commitment. So we have a leadership commitment. It supports our division mission, which then supports the mission of our department, right? We have program pillars. I, I share that to say, this is what we are striving to achieve here. And here's how your role currently fits in here. And then here's some opportunities within that, right? So first, let's talk about what's here. Then let's talk about you. And then let's talk about what might exist outside, right? I, I think one of the things we fear as compliance officers with new people coming on is that they're going to leave. I hope my team leaves. I want <laughs> them to go do bigger and better things, right? Right. Right. right? And, and I really do see it as a, as a win-win, as a, as a, and that's an overused phrase, but it's, it's an opportunity for them to contribute to what we have going on and our aspirations here, right? And here's how they play into that. Show them that direction. At the same time, allow them the opportunity and the growth and to empower them and to value them enough to say, and we're here to support you so you can go do bigger and better. We mm -hmm. hope that's in our organization, right? But yeah. maybe it's not because there's a big wide world out there. And why, how we do that with my team is I have a three-year personal strategic plan that we kind of walk through. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's, you know, four core areas. You know, I ask them to set three-year goals in each of these areas. Um, each of these areas have a vision. I love to share this template with your audience, um, you know, Use it as a springboard to develop your own template for your own team. But the four areas are just self, others, executive, which is kind of that technical development aspect we've spoken about, Patrick. And, and then thinking through those key leadership traits that we'd all like to, to, to have, right, and to cultivate. I, I want to create and support a team of people that challenge me to be better and to do more and at the same time support me to do the same thing. Um, and so that's how I look at these initiatives. And that's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that organizations do a bad job at is just supporting managerial efforts in total. And so, you know, one way to do that better is to just be a better manager yourself. And in doing so, you help yourself grow. So, mm -hmm. you know, thinking back to your own career path and your own professional development. Yeah. There's a couple of things. I mean, again, a couple of things that you said in there that I just think are fantastic. And so would love to, to reiterate those and, and kind of highlight them. I mean, one thing that you mentioned that I think is so important, and I have seen really great examples of this in my career. I've seen examples that, that weren't very good in this space, which is that you're know, really good leaders are always trying to lift their employees up that are always trying to lift the people on their teams up. And they understand that by the way, like if the people on your team continue to do really, really great work and shine every time they get a new assignment or, or put on a new project or whatever else, that's going to make you look like a great leader. Yeah. Like, like you're going to then by default, you're going to look like you do a great job leading and training and managing and developing skilled talent, which in and of itself is a great 
skill day. But I think there's sometimes a fear of like, oh, if I do, you know, if I train this person up too well, then they're going to like replace me. And that's always such a, it has such a negative connotation to it. And to me is the wrong framework to approach that situation. Rather it's let's, let's, like you said, let's challenge each other. Let's get better at it, but let's continue to support each other throughout the process. And ultimately, again, I think good leaders know that if they do a great job mentoring folks on their team, it's ultimately even in addition to right doing the right thing and, and being great for your, your people on your team, it is still going to reflect really positively on, on you too. It also provides, I think, you know, your point about trying to create, I want to be in a, in a, at a place, uh, a firm, a company where they do things for the employees. They want to foster a culture at that company that people want to stay there. (laughs) People want to stay and work there. And that opposite, look, I'm sure the state of Tennessee is thrilled that you are where you are at managing the team that, that you have, because I mean, just in the conversation we've had today, you, the, the fact that you're taking the time to be thoughtful and purposeful about building that kind of environment, I think, speaks volumes and, and certainly um, would would be a, a such a great benefit for the folks on your team. And so, uh, I, you know, that's f- fantastic advice and, and certainly ones that I think our, our listenership will will benefit from as well. You mentioned something earlier too. You you actually alluded back to the uh, conversation we had with Rob Tull a, a few months back, and you know Rob did such a good job of talking about some of the uh, stress and anxiety that goes along with being a compliance officer, and now pairs some of that uh, feelings of isolation and other stuff like that that we can have just by being a compliance officer, where sometimes it feels like we're always playing the role of bad cop, right? Or we're always playing the role where people, you know, the no, oh, compliance is here, great, thanks for the no fun police uh, to show up, yeah. uh, right? Um, no, awesome, uh, excited, I won't be able to say that in the next marketing pitch, right? Um, so like you get, you get that kind of uh, tag associated with you that can, uh, certainly, you know, lead to isolation. But then uh, on top of that, we've had COVID, <laughs> we've had the pandemic. And so I guess, you know, maybe if, if you wouldn't mind, I, I would really like to get your feedback on, you know, certain challenges that you've seen, uh, to, and you've already talked about some of them to build that community on, on, inside your team. But are there other personal experiences that you have found that can be successful, uh, both for yourself and for your teammates to, you know, w- get through, right? What is a very challenging environment or like, what are some of the things that you use to get through when you have some of those feelings of isolation or when you're going through, again, just a challenging experience in general? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, I think it, it's important that you know, the, the, the old adage, know thyself, right? Know thyself. Um, you know, you, you need to understand and you need to, to learn to recognize some of your behaviors that you exhibit when you get in those spaces, when you start to feel isolated or, or lonely or like you're not connecting or what am I doing here, right? Like we all have those days. We're all, you know, and you know, we've already touched on the mentors, and obviously that's a big part of, of helping you kind of overcome and work through those things too. But I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's just as important to know what your space is to to rejuvenate yourself, right? So I am a really strong introvert at 
Most people don't know that because I'm not shy. There's a difference. There's a big difference. Um, and we, there's lots of science behind all that. And I'll save that for another show. But as an introvert, right, I carry a lot of stuff around all the time and I'm constantly chewing on it, right? Extroverts generally, right? Like I have one of my best friends is a, is a verbal extrovert at that, right? So she's like constantly just throwing it at you. That's how she processes it. For me, I have to get out in the woods. Like I have to get out in the woods and I have to hike. And it's through that hiking process that I become physically exhausted at a point where then my inner mind, my, my logic, my spirit, all of those things can be quiet and just be. That's my space, right? That's what helps me get through some of those times when I just can't work through things. I'm just, I'm just feeling like I'm getting nowhere. And, and for an, an introvert, additional isolation is what helps me, right? But again, know thyself. If you're an extrovert and you need to surround those people, then you have to create that space for you. Mm -hmm. Know what that space is and create it. Mm -hmm. That's such great advice. And you have already sparked what I know will be a future episode of the <laughs> Compliance and Context podcast, which is the extrovert introvert conversation, because I have this all the time. And uh, the definition I uh, really uh, felt resonated with me in going through some of that own self-reflection was like, how do you recharge? Yeah. Do you recharge by being around other people or do you recharge by being alone and by collecting your thoughts and by like you mentioned allowing your soul to be quiet right yeah. and like and 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 be able to to kind of come to a place where you can uh 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 in a thoughtful purposeful way look at what's going on in your life and the different thoughts you're having so that's really cool i can't i mean thank you so so much for coming on the show today and sharing this with 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 all our listeners i mean in addition to the the you know personal development personal development meaning like a, a person's uh, personal professional development that's been fantastic but also because of for many of our listeners who are managing and leading teams of people this is just excellent stuff uh for them to be able to kind of chew on as they're thinking about how they can foster that wonderful environment communal environment inside their own teams and then and also hopefully start to help the folks on their teams do their own goal setting and, and professional development let's get you out of here with maybe a more fun question or a little tidbit which is that now in the day <laughs> in addition to love it yeah. In addition to the uh, what you just mentioned, uh, hiking, uh, we talked about at the top of the show, the fact that, that you enjoy backpacking. So my question for you is, where is your favorite? We'll, we'll do actually it's a two part question, two part question. Okay, okay. okay. All right. So where is your favorite place to go hiking? And uh, uh, could be the same answer. But where is your favorite like state or national park to go okay. hiking? Also, because okay. I'm looking also because I'm looking for travel ideas. But go ahead. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so it is the same answer for me. Um, I, I, you know, being here in Tennessee, we are blessed with an abundance of outdoor activities. And having come from Houston, I can say this with full confidence Four seasons. Right. Not hot, <laughs> hotter and hottest. No, no. We get all right. four here. So my favorite place to hike and my favorite state park is Frozen Head State Park out in East Tennessee. 
It is uh, a challenging hike. It's, it's mountainous, so it's um, low-impact state park, and they have some of the most beautiful waterfalls and um, wildflower displays that I've ever seen. And the state park faculty and crew are amazing. So it's one of my top places. Highly right, recommend it. Anybody come visit me and I'll take you there. <laughs> Love it. Fantastic. And I, I definitely know where the Hayes family is going to be making a trip here as, uh, as as my oldest gets gets to be good good hiking age. So Jennifer, thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Really, really excellent conversation and really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do it. Uh, look forward to having you back on the show here at some point down the road. I appreciate the opportunity, Pat, and thank you so much for all that you do for our community. The final part of today's show features another installment of Outtakes. It's been a while since we finished an episode with an edition of Outtakes. And as a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, if compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at entertaining, sometimes humorous, but always unsettling activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or when trying to avoid a similar compliance breakdown inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. Earlier this year, an exempt reporting advisor and related private fund were investigated by the SEC for a variety of of securities laws violations, including misappropriation of funds, making material misstatements, failing to disclose conflicts of interest, among many, many other infractions. From August 2014 through September 2019, the advisor and its sole owner fraudulently raised and misappropriated tens of millions of dollars of investor funds from the sale of limited partnership interests in a private fund. Defendants made material material misstatements of fact and omitted to disclose material facts regarding the fund's investment strategy, valuation procedures, and performance. It also misappropriated fund assets, failed to eliminate or disclose serious conflicts of interest, and falsely represented that the fund would be audited annually. Defendants intentionally made materially false representations to LP investors and potential investors that their fundamental investment strategy in managing the fund was to maintain a highly liquid portfolio with the objectives of capital appreciation, current income, and risk management. Defendants represented to investors that they were primarily trading options and preferred stock for the fund. In reality, by the end of 2014, the advisor firm had begun to invest in predominantly illiquid investments such as private startups, early stage companies, real estate ventures, including some of which were even owned by the advisor's owners, friends, and associates. Despite these material changes in the fund's investment strategy, the advisor continued to promote the fund as a primarily liquid investment, which, of course, it was not. Defendants continued to make make these false misrepresentations in the fund's private placement memorandum, or PPM. They distributed that for the better part of four and a half years. And the advisor also made numerous misleading statements about the performance of the fund's investments, specifically the owner's role in achieving the alleged positive returns. Unfortunately, during this time, the advisor raised over $38 million from approximately 90 investors who wanted and were led to believe they were getting a highly liquid investment fund. As of August 31st, 2019, 
the defendants reported total assets under management of approximately $48 million. So what happened to all that money? Well, the owner deposited a cool $26.6 million in a separate company that included the name F5 in the title. Cool company name, bro. The owner also bought an airplane hangar for, you guessed it, Nope, you didn't guess it. Not the F5. Yep, for his own personal race car collection. And I would imagine his matching race car bed. I may have added that last one. So if you're asking yourself now, well, what's the lesson here? If your firm or your firm's clients are looking to invest in a private fund of any kind, make sure there is an auditor present and make sure that I should say an auditor that is involved and make sure you are receiving audited financials. If a fund can't substantiate with any kind of legit documentation why it's valued at a certain amount, well then it may not be worth anything and you should probably start digging a little bit deeper. As noted in the complaint here, by failing to have the fund audited, the advisor firm further concealed its misconduct in shifting the fund strategy and its misappropriation of fund assets. The advisor firm's failure to have the fund audited eliminated a check, inflating the value of the fund assets in reports to investors and in turn, taking fees to which they were not entitled. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Jennifer Selliers, for her honest and insightful look at how best to find your own career path in compliance. Please join us again next time on Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at ComplianceBod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 